listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. Every Saturday morning, I, I watch Smirconish on CNN. And then I sell my guest today, and I, I dig what he does. And then it must have been two months ago, I got a, I got a message at, on Facebook on my Cooper Talk radio page from this woman who was writing for a magazine called Cherry Hill Neighbors. And she said they'd like to do a segment on me. It's their column called Straight Out of Cherry Hill. So I said, sure, you know, for me, I'm not going to turn down press. And they sat there and they sent me a past column and it was my guest. And I turned out, well, he's not only a legal analyst for CNN. He's not only a best-selling author. He's not only had an amazing career as a lawyer. He's also a Cherry Hill East graduate and a fan of Vito's Pizza. And my guest is Ellie Honig. How you doing, Ellie? Steve, great to be with you. So a couple things. First of all, nothing is better than doing local media, than doing the Cherry Hill, you know, whatever the local papers are, South Jersey Magazine or New Jersey Magazine. And the reason is because you have to give your mom that coffee table bragging experience, right? <laughs> and let me tell you, when I've done those kind of profiles, like my mom gets more credit than anything else I do. More people in Cherry Hill read those newspapers than watch CNN uh, because everyone in Cherry Hill reads those newspapers, which is great. And, and now, look, this is a I, I'm trying to I, I don't like to get political, but you raise Vito's pizza and I gather you know what's happened at Vito's pizza or do you? No, I don't. Because, you know, as I said, I moved back six years ago. I've only been there once. OK, I know okay. the whole Mac and Manco Manco, which to me is the most overrated pizza ever. Si I'm sorry. So, but tell me about Vito's. Very similar, very similar succession like controversy has erupted over Vito. So. Vito's, when you and I grew up, was, was right at the corner of 561, you know, in the shopping center there. But apparently, and I'm, I may not get this right, I'm getting this sort of hearsay, the brothers who ran Vito's had a falling out, and one of, and now there's the original spot of Vito's, but then there's another Vito's over in, in Voorhees, like down 561 the other way, and so now there's a big controversy, like which Vito's, are you old school Vito's, are you new Vito's? And, and opinions vary as which one's better, but I'm just, I'm all about the red, you know, the red building that I grew up in, uh, the, the old school vetoes. Now, I, I want to get into the whole political climate, what's going on, but I want to talk, now, we both went to East. I graduated 82. I believe you graduated 93. No, uh, exactly. You went to Woodcrest Elementary. Yes, I did. I went to Johnson. Now, did you go to, did you go to Heritage or was it Rosa by the time you went? No. Heritage and Rosa were both closed. They were they were they were abandoned when I was there. I know they're back now, but I went to Beck. Henry Charlton Beck Middle School, named after the great Pine Barrens poet, Henry Charlton Beck. <laughs> now, you know, growing up in Cherry Hill, you've done very well for yourself. And and I always think about, you know, growing up in Cherry Hill, we were so lucky. We had an amazing school system. Yes. I mean, I remember yes. Dr. Dwyer was my English teacher, and, and he had taught me, you know, I wrote a paper, How to Give a Wedgie. And he sat there, <laughs> and he had no problem with it. And he goes, be creative. And then I went up into a career in stand-up comedy, and that helped me. But what did you take away from the Cherry Hill school system? I, I want to completely second what you said. I went to Cherry Hill Public Schools all the way through 12th, you know, senior year of high school. I went to Rutgers University, which is a public college as well. Um, we were, you, you said it exactly right. We were very, very lucky to grow up in Cherry Hill. And I don't think you realize it when you're a kid. You'd always just think, oh, this place sucks. I can't wait to get out of here. But looking back, we had a fantastic education. When I went to college, I felt more than ready. I felt like some of the classes at Rutgers 
were easier than some of the classes and, and you know that i took not easier well yes easier um we had remarkable teachers i remember mr carr similar to what you were talking about an english teacher who just challenged us and inspired us to be original to take chances to to um sort of break the normal boundaries he, he was an inspiring teacher i had great teachers all throughout my career i actually thank some of them in the acknowledgments of my of my books um i think public the public school teachers in cherry hill are remarkable and deserve so much credit and look cherry hill is just a great place to grow up i mean of course it's got its problems like anywhere else but you know growing up what we did in the 80s and 90s you were kind of free we rode our bikes everywhere you go to the you, you constantly just pick up games of basketball and touch football and we had the pool club and you know there's there's good diversity in cherry hill it's not the most racially diverse place but that's increasing and i went to high school with, and had friends of all types from all different backgrounds and um i'm still close with a lot of my friends from high school so i do feel very lucky to have grown up there and i'll say my parents still live in the very same house that we grew up in in, in woodcrest so it's great to go back as well i would always when i would visit because my parents moved to delaware my dad has since passed my mom's in a, a care facility. But whenever I would come back, when I first started dating my now wife 12 years ago, I would always drive through my old neighborhood at Christmas time just to see the yeah. lights and just to drive. And then you'd see stuff that closed. Like, as I said, I grew up in Crescent Woods and there used to be a little yeah, sure. strip mall at Crescent and this place, Yangtze River. This Chinese restaurant was open forever. And I drove by one time about 10 years ago and it was closed and became a vape shop and i was so upset because that was like oh, i rode my bike horrible. through that little conti station all the time and it just it took a, it takes away a part of our soul i think because you're right we did have such a sense of community and i saw you in the straight out cherry hill you mentioned the the 7-eleven on crescent well johnson yes. school we used to cut up and and i drove by and it used to be the the water tower had cherries now they're not gone totally. it's like it's something else so it's just insane how did i, how did I mention why did i mention the 7-eleven i saw it in your, I, I read your straight out of cherry hill and it said it's his childhood memories yeah. like i said you know we used to have kegs on the woodcrest country club that we, that's something sure, we would do. Sure. but it just came up and i thought of you because i live right um, near there that's so funny because i had i had a similar experience when i was you know i go i see my parents you know several times a year so it's it's always wonderful going back and everywhere you know i everywhere i go i run like do a run through neighborhood and i'll be like oh there's so-and-so's house there's so but i'll tell you one that 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 uh bothered me similar so do you remember this is actually technically not cherry hill but it's right over the border Voorhees news you remember Voorhees news yeah right great news then they had out-of-town magazines they had sports magazines they had gum they had candy they had cigars and it was just like you know when i got to go there it was like paradise and it's gone now it's it's i think it's also maybe a vape show. it's something depressing and i just thought oh man there's a little piece of uh a little piece of, of our youth gone, but but I do have great memories, and uh, and and I'm, I feel lucky that my parents are still there and still have a lot of their same neighbors and same house. Now you, you've had a great career. You're you're, you're the uh, legal analyst for CNN. Now tell me, for you, you have so much going on with Trump and now Hunter Biden. I mean, for you, is it are you on overload? And what's going on? And what are your takes on what will happen? Because you're the expert. Well, I'm never on overload. I mean, it's a lot, and it come, happens to come in very fast. Anytime I'm at home thinking, boy, today's sort of quiet for legal. Like, they may not need me tonight. Like, that is – anytime I think that, that I will cause massive legal news to happen by thinking that. And I did think it the other day, and sure enough, I've been in a hotel for two days now because I'm going round the clock here. Um, big picture take – I'll start with Hunter Biden because it's sort of the newest news. I, I'm no – 
fan or apologist for Hunter Biden whatsoever. I think he's a, a horrible human being who has um, profited enormously off of his name. He's made millions of dollars that he had no qualification to make. He has been he's a deadbeat dad to a to a child who he's trying to cut off financially. I just have no sympathy. For, I know he's an addict. I do have sympathy for that. But he's also a horrible human being. That said, and I've spoken out that, that I don't think he should be treated as some I don't think anyone needs to tiptoe around him. That said, I don't see anything in this plea deal that gives me concern. I don't believe there's any legitimacy to the complaint that he was given a sweetheart deal. I mean, part of the problem is, how does anyone know? We're not DOJ. There's 10 people on the planet who know what DOJ had. The other thing I keep coming back to is there's nothing unreasonable at all about a tax misdemeanor in a case like this. The gun crime he was charged with, which is possession of a firearm while an addict, on the one hand, no one gets a free pass on, on firearm, federal firearms charges, or very rarely, which he's getting. On the other hand, almost nobody ever gets charged with that. Usually, federal firearms crimes are for someone who uses a gun in, in the course of another crime or is a convicted felon who has a gun. This, I said earlier today on CNN, I did dozens, probably hundreds, but I said dozens to be careful, dozens of federal firearm cases. I never even heard of this, <laughs> a possession of firearm as an addict. Um, it's so obscure. It's so far down the list. So I don't think he was mistreated by DOJ as far as what we can tell now. Um, so, uh, you know, and I think people are, are, you know, the fact that people immediately came out with positions one way or another, I think sort of shows you that they have an agenda. If you're immediately coming out saying this is an outrage, either way, you probably have an agenda because we, we just don't know enough to know. We know we know the numerator here. We don't know the denominator, basically. Right. Um, Donald Trump is, is such an interesting and complex situation because Obviously, we have all the firsts. First time a former president has been indicted. First time a former president has been federally indicted. Uh, we're running out of firsts, by the way. When he gets indicted in Georgia, which I think is likely, we're going to have to think of a new way. I guess we'll say first time a president, former president has been indicted by a state below the Mason-Dixon line or something. But um, it's not surprising that he got indicted. You know, my second book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, on sale now. Uh, my second book... We had to finish, we had to lock off the writing on it probably in mid to late 2022, and then it published in January 2023. And I was nervous because I didn't know what was going to happen. And so what I wrote in the book is, by the time you're holding this book in your hands, there's a very good chance Donald Trump will have been indicted maybe more than once. And that has come true. And But what I argue in the book, I do stand by. I think it's very unlikely that he ends up physically going to prison on any of these. And we can talk through the reasons why that is, but I'll, I'll give you the quick quick version of that. The Manhattan DA case, the hush money case, even if he gets convicted, and I think that charge is weak, um, he could get convicted because Manhattan jury will despise him so much because he's so unpopular in Manhattan. Even if he gets convicted on that case, he in all likelihood is not getting sentenced to prison. If you look at New York law, if you look at what he's charged with, that very likely will be a non-incarceratory sentence. Turning to the Mar-a-Lago case, that is a very strong indictment, very well supported by the evidence. But first, you got to convict him, and your jury's going to be a tough jury. You're going to be trying this case. DOJ is going to be trying this case in South Florida, where Trump has conservatively 40, 45 percent political support. So like it or not, you're going to have four, five, six, seven Trump voters on your jury. Not to say that a Trump voter is automatically going to say not guilty, but given the choice, if I was Trump, I would sure as hell want that. Um, and then even if he gets convicted, 
Then you need a judge to sentence him to prison. I do think it's a prison case. It should be a prison case if he's convicted, if you look at the sentencing guidelines. Then you need it to hold up on appeal. Then you need him to not win the election or not get pardoned. And I actually even think if he gets convicted and sentenced to prison and he loses the election and Joe Biden is president, I actually think there's a chance that Joe Biden not pardons him but commutes his sentence and says, you know what? He's 80 years old, 80 by this point, 80, 81 years old, whatever Trump will be three, four years from now. We've been through enough. He's been convicted. And I also think Joe Biden may be a little bit, you know, he'll be a lame duck by that point. It'll be his second term. He'll be fearful of what, you know, people will not be happy if Donald Trump gets locked up. So all of which is to say there's a lot of off ramps here for Donald Trump, even though I think the DOJ indictment is very well founded, very well supported. Um, there's just a lot of ways he can avoid going to prison. You know, it's funny. You have, as I said, the, the title legal analyst. And I want to ask you, when did you start getting fascinated in the law? Like at East, did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? Because East basically was, I always say, well, you said you went to Rutgers. At East, it was pretty much, when I graduated, the big three were, I went to Stockton, but there was Rutgers, yep. Penn, and Penn State. They were like the big three. And it's probably the same <laughs> with you, and it's still the same because I see on Facebook, people are going... Kids going to Rutgers. Kids going to Penn State. Yeah, but were, were you? Yeah. Thought, did you know you wanted to be a lawyer when you were in East, or was it when you got at Rutgers you decided you wanted to pursue law? Yeah, it was during college. So I should mention my dad is a lawyer uh, in in Cherry Hill and Voorhees, um, and he's sort of a solo practitioner. He had a, he had a partner, you know, at times. But um, you know, people say, "Well, oh, did you want to be a lawyer because your dad?" And I say, "All love and respect to my dad, and he understands this." I say, "No, quite the opposite." Because I got to see that it's not all about the glamour. It's not all about uh, to kill a mockingbird or a few good men, these dramatic courtrooms. I got to see what a real lawyer does. My dad worked his ass off. And he, because he had a small solo practice, like I remember he, he was in a house, in fact, like up um, up King's Highway, or not up, up on the west side, um, I think up King's, like near the library, where the yeah, general yeah. library is, right? So, um, he he had an office that was zoned, you know, it was a house, but it was zoned for an office. And the basement would flood when it rained a lot. And I would, he would get, I, the first paying job I ever had was when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. I came up and started moving soaked legal files out of the basement, putting them up on pallets and stuff. And, and the point is just like, I saw how hard he worked and how it's not like what you see in the movies. And if anything, that deterred me from wanting to become a lawyer. Um, when I... When I was at East, I had we were t- talking about great teachers. I had a great teacher. I actually remember her name. I'll say it in case she happens to be listening. Mrs. Linton, who was a, a psychology teacher. And my senior year, I had her, and I was fascinated by it. And I, when I went to Rutgers, I said, this is what I think I want. I think I want to do this. Then I got to Rutgers, and I took a psych 101 course, and I had a boring professor. And I was like, I'm out. No good. And But but this is funny how these things work. I had a, Also, I had a spectacular criminal justice professor named Milt Human, who I'm still close with to this day. And he had this fire and I got an internship when I was at Rutgers with the Middlesex County Public Defender's Office. So I was going into jail. I was meeting with clients. I was watching trials and I was riveted immediately. I was like, "This, yes, this is what I want to do. This is fascinating. This sort of lights my light. And from there it was, you know, I was a sophomore by the time this happened. And from there it was a short leap to law school. So that's when I knew and I was lucky enough to end up working in that criminal justice process later in my career. Now, when you got out of college and you went, you went through your, you got your law at Harvard. 
Yes. Yeah, okay. So after you graduate, what direction do you want to go at, at that time? Because I know you end up getting into the organized crime, which I'm fascinated by that. But what was your direction when you first got out? Were you saying, first of all, you're graduating from Harvard, so you have credo. You're from Cherry Hill. It's good. I mean, it's a good reputation. But what what was your what was your path at that point? What did you want to do? I knew for sure by that point that I wanted to be a prosecutor. I knew I wanted to be involved in the world of criminal justice. Um, but you don't really just go directly to DOJ to become a federal prosecutor. You have to sort of do something else first. And the most common route is to go to a big firm. So I spent my first three and a half years after law firm, after law school at a big, fancy Washington, D.C. law firm called Covington & Burling. And I had a great experience there. Um, I got to do a, a lot of interesting cases. Um, they let me do a lot of pro bono work. So I actually did a death penalty defense case down in Florida which was a, 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 you know, a really remarkable experience. And um, we did some criminal defense at the firm, and I loved it. And, you know, look, you also do your fair share of drudgery at a big firm like that. There's no question about it. And so three and a half years in, I started applying to U.S. attorney's offices, and, and I got hired at the Southern District of New York, which is the federal part of DOJ, the federal prosecutor in Manhattan. So it, yes, I definitely knew when I graduated law school that I wanted to end up in criminal justice. I wanted, probably wanted to be a prosecutor. And that was sort of, you know, a lot of things in life don't go according to a plan or they're not linear. This is one thing where I did have a plan and it actually did work out. Although I should, let me mention uh, while I'm at it, that I, it was not a straight line because I really wanted to be a U, an AUSA, an assistant U.S. attorney. And the first place I applied was the Philadelphia office, the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And I walked in there. I was 27, 28 years old. I was like, I'm from here. I'm a Cherry Hill kid. I went to Harvard Law. Like, when do I start? Overly cocky, probably. <laughs> and they rejected me. Um, and probably because of that reason. I mean, I didn't say that, you know, but, um, and then I also got rejected from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn. I actually didn't even think it was possible to go to the famous vaunted SDNY. I, I didn't even think I would be considered. And only after I got rejected from those two did I apply to the Southern District. And just the way things fell, they liked me and I got that job. So it's, you can't plan these things. Well, tell me about your time there. How did you end up getting involved in organized crime? And, you know, it's funny because there, there was, growing up in Cherry Hill, once again, there was, you know, the Campinos lived here, there's different, I mean, the people lived in Cherry Hill. Oh. And you saw it, and I used to, when I did comedy, you know, you'd play a club in South Philly, and you go, oh, there's little Nicky Scarfo. I mean, you see people. Yep. So for us, I don't think it was something, we weren't culturally shocked by it because we would see, I still remember as a kid, the news was before you were born, a guy, a mobster, got shot going over the Ben Franklin Bridge. And his car was just there. And the picture on the Philadelphia yeah. Inquirer was him laying like that. And I still remember right. that vision. But how did you get involved with that? How did you get involved with that branch of it? So, okay, two quick local stories, if I can. When I started in, in the organized crime unit at the Southern District of New York, my mom, still lives in Cherry Hill, said, Oh, there's a, there's Gambinos in Cherry Hill, and I said, "Oh, get out of here, mom! That's a that's a urban <laughs> legend." So then, fast forward to I'm talking to this guy John Carrillo, who was a career long NYPD organized crime investigator. I became very close with, but I I always remember when I first met John, he goes, "Where are you from?" I said, "Cherry Hill." He goes, "A lot of Gambinos there," and I said, "What?" I said, "My mom used to say that," and they make fun of me. He goes, "Pick up the phone right now, call your mom, and apologize. She's right." So that's real. Um, <laughs> The other thing I will tell you, 
and again, take take this in the spirit in which it's intended, is the New York City mobsters look down at the Philly mobsters. They think the Philly mobsters are minor leaguers. They occasionally, I would say, do you have any connection to Philly? They're like, eh, those guys, I don't, I don't bother with those guys. Or, you know, we met them once in a diner and they didn't have anything going on. But on the, on the flip side, the Philly mob world is much smaller, but the Philly community that they are involved in is much smaller, right? It's that sort of mostly that South Philly area. So they have, they do have a big influence in Philly. Okay, now to your actual question. Um, when you go through the Southern District of New York, your first two years are set in stone. Your first year, you do general crimes, lower level federal crimes. Second year, you do narcotics. You start building up, doing wiretaps, bigger cases. After year two comes this moment of truth where it's decided which of the six or seven senior units are you going to go to. There's terrorism, there's corruption, public corruption, there's financial crimes, there's securities fraud, and there's organized crime. And I was like, I know what I want. I want organized crime. And honestly, for no better reason than it just seemed awe-inspiring. It seemed like the movies, but better. And thankfully, they had an opening and they needed someone. And so I just landed there. And three, four years later, I found myself, I was the deputy chief and then the chief of the unit. So I spent my last six and change, six and a half years out of eight and a half years there in the organized crime unit, eventually became chief and co-chief of the organized crime unit. So uh, we can talk about this, but I did trials, murder trials, RICO trials, bosses, dug up dead bodies. Tell me, no, I want to hear that. Tell, tell me, tell me if movies, but better. Tell me a few good mob stories because of cases you worked on. Because I'm, as I said, I've been fascinated with, you know, Goodfellas, Godfather. Just, I love the, you know, Sopranos. I've interviewed a lot of the guys, like, interview Little Carmine. I've interviewed a bunch of people from the Sopranos yeah. on the show. Yeah. What were some of the cases that you were involved of in that you were fascinated you? And when you're done with that, were you ever scared? Well, first of all, sorry, were you ever scared when you're handling cases with mobsters? Because once again, it's like it's not like TV or the movies, but you never know. Yeah, I, I, I have so many mobsters, I wouldn't I wouldn't know where to start. But I'll give you just one for now. Um, we did a case where the Genovese family, which is generally the best organized and sort of the most ruthless um, of the five families. They decided they were going to try to essentially branch out, right? Because they're very local. They're very, you know, Queens, Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, maybe a little bit of activity in Westchester County. But they decided, let's try to, like, colonize Springfield, Massachusetts, essentially, which is a little bit of a mob hotbed. Uh, Blue-collar city, um, small, you know, similar to Philly in that it's a smaller universe, a smaller mob presence, but a dominant presence in a smaller universe. And so they started killing each other there, and we flipped one of the guys who was involved. They put a hit out on Big Al Bruno, who was one of their bosses. They found the crazy kid who gunned him down outside of his own social club. Sunday night, Al Bruno's coming out. They gun him down. And by the way, season two of my podcast, Up Against the Mob, is all about this whole case. Um, we flip a made guy from Springfield, and this guy was part of the Al Bruno murder. And we had charged him with the Al Bruno murder. And so he comes in for his first, what we call a proffer session, the first time we're going to get to ask him questions. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, I was in on the Al Bruno hit. You guys got everyone right on that. You got the shooter right. I'll tell you everyone who was involved in that. But he was like, I also know where Gary Westerman is. And now I don't, I don't know what this means. I don't know the name. But the FBI agents on the case were from Massachusetts. And they were like, holy blank like he's been missing for seven years and anthony arellano the cooperator was like yeah yeah we killed him we buried him in the woods you want me to show you where and we were like yes we do <laughs> and so we had to go get uh we had anthony was in jail Ar anthony arellano by the way is this 
star of the podcast. I he I spent several days with him interviewing him, and which and he's a riveting character. He's a he's the classic mob character that you know is a horrible person, but you can't help rooting for. Sort of like Tony Soprano. Um, and Anthony, so we got a sign out order from the judge, basically permission to take him out of jail for the day in FBI custody. They drive him up to the woods of a town called Agawam, Massachusetts, next to Springfield. And the ruse was on this guy. This guy was um, they wanted to kill him because they thought he was cooperating with the cops um, and for other sort of personal. I, well, no, that that. Well, let's just let's just keep it simple because they thought he was cooperating with the cops. And so they but he was a bad guy. And so they lured him into the woods by telling him, we, the five of us are going to rob this house together. This is the house of a drug dealer. So we're going to put on ski masks and we're going to go in through the woods into this guy's house through the back. We're going to tie him up and beat the crap out of him and take his stuff. Well, Gary Westerman is like, great, count me in. So they lure Gary Westerman into the woods. They turn their guns on Gary Westerman, shoot him. The bullets actually don't penetrate his skull. It turned out later because the silencer was sort of faulty and it was slowing down the bullets, so they didn't have, they weren't actually fast enough to penetrate. And then Anthony and another guy, because the guy wasn't dying, took shovels and beat him to death over the head with the shovels. They they're already let me just add this: they buried him in a grave that had already been dug for a different guy they were supposed <laughs> to kill a few weeks before, but they didn't kill him. There was a change in plans, so they were like. They were like, well, why, why waste a good hole in the ground? You know, you got to fill it with somebody, right? Um, so they kill Gary Westerman. They bury him in the woods. No one knows what happens to Gary Westerman for seven years. And Anthony comes in, says, I know where the guy's buried. We bring him up to the woods and dig here. Um, FBI actually, we start finding shell casings around right there. Seven years later in New England, shell casings are still there. They probe it. There's actually a thing you can like, sort of like a, like a rod you can stick in the ground that can tell if it's ever been disrupted, even seven years ago. And the FBI agents were like, yeah, th this, this, this ground has been disrupted. And so they did a dig. They went and got a backhoe, basically. And what, what you do is it scoops off very thinly, like one inch or two inches of dirt at a time, and then pours it into this massive sifty colander, right? Because you're looking for evidence. And the first couple scoops didn't reveal anything. And then the third or fourth scoop, they hit something hard, it was the bottom of the sneakers of Gary Westerman because he had been dumped in, had sort of toppled in head first. So he's head down, feet up, and sure enough, there he is. And they ended up having to go in with an archaeologist and dig by hand and dust. And we found and exhumed the body seven years later. We added that murder charge. Um, we ended up going to trial on three of the defendants, including the boss of the family who, who authorized, actually not that hit, but the other one. Um, and we convicted all these guys. And I, I got to stand in front of the jury and say something like this. Uh, you know, folks, there's an expression that people use called, there's an expression that people use, which is, does he know where the bodies are buried, right? It's a figurative expression, but it means, does this guy really know what he's talking about? In this case, Anthony Arellata literally knew where the body was buried. Um, and so we, you know, we got those convictions quite easily. So that's the kind of stuff you do, and you're like, I can't believe this is my job, right? It's remarkable. Um, I also later on tried John Gotti Jr. Um, I didn't want to. We didn't. We had my office had tried him three times when I was a rookie before I was in the organized crime unit, and all three times the jury hung, meaning they they didn't get to a unanimous verdict, and we eventually dismissed the case. Years later, Florida charged him. The case got moved up to us. I had to try it. We did our best, but the jury hung again. They just said it's not fair to try a guy four times. So 
that was a, an interesting experience that I write about in, I think, in both books, it, it, different aspects as well. Um, to your question about was I ever scared or no. Um, and the reason is it doesn't do anything for them to come after me. One of the, the mob has its rules. Many of them are often honored in the breach. For example, one of the rules is you're not supposed to deal drugs. A lot of them do. There's too much money in it. But one of the rules, you're not supposed to go after a prosecutor, a cop, or a judge because it's completely self-defeating for them. There's no benefit. If, if, if the rule was if you kill me, the case goes away, I definitely would have been killed many times over. But if, what happens if they do something to me? You just plug in the next assistant U.S. attorney and all hell, holy hell will rain down on them. They get nothing out of it except for heat, which they're allergic to heat. Also, I will say, like, I never made it personal with these guys. I wasn't the kind that would try to humiliate them at trial. I would do everything I could to convict them, but I wouldn't put in extraneous bullshit to, excuse me, to, to you know, to, to just humiliate them. I wouldn't point my finger in their face. Some prosecutors like this guy, you know, pointing the finger. It wasn't about that for me. It was business. It was never personal. And they came to respect me as a result. Um, and I will say, like, I still have good relationships with some of my cooperating witnesses, the guys who flipped and put themselves in danger. I'm still in touch with a lot of them. Anthony Arlotta did this whole series of interviews with me. Um, because I just treat them with respect, like treat every person like a human being. And um, so, no, I've never been afraid and nothing ever happened. Now, seeing you love that job, what made you, uh, why did you decide to leave? Was it just something that you outgrow? I mean, you sit there or you sit yeah. there and you want to have a family or I mean, how did, why do you, because it seems it would be a fascinating, fascinating job. Yeah. So um, I was 14, I was a prosecutor 14 years. I did eight and a half years with the Southern District of New York. Then I came home to Jersey where I was head of the entire criminal justice division for the AG's office. So I became a sort of supervisory, you know, big picture um, prosecutor there. I moved from the SDNY is not a place where people go for 20 years. It's an up and out place. Usually you're there for five to 10 years. Um, and then most people leave and go to these big firms and make huge amounts of money. I did my eight and a half years. The commute was, was our 20 minutes each way. And this opportunity opened up in Jersey. And I thought, great, I get to go home. I get to have a bigger role, really have a manageable lifestyle. So um, eight and a half years, I would say, is average to maybe slightly above average at the Southern District. It's just a very quick turnover place. That's the natural course of it. Um, and then in Jersey, you know, I, I, I was there way longer, I think, than your average director of the Division of Criminal Justice. Um, and then it came time, you know, I, I had done that. I, I served through five New Jersey state attorney general, uh, and then I left. And the funny thing is people sometimes ask, well, how, how did the whole media thing happen? The answer is completely by accident. I had no plan on doing this. When I left the AG's office, it was 20, summer of 2018, right at the heart of the Mueller investigation. I started teaching at Rutgers, and friends of mine who, who had been doing this media uh, business said, you know, they need prosecutors. We think you'd be good at this. Do you want to try it? So I would come up, and I started. I did one hit for CNN. I did one segment on MSNBC. I actually did a couple segments on Fox even. And it sort of grew and grew and grew. And at the end of the summer, CNN made me an offer, and MSNBC did as well. Uh, but I chose CNN. I'm very glad that I did. And I've now been here for five years. Now, what made you start writing books? Because you've had two bestsellers. And that, and that's fascinating. And and they're very, it's yeah. funny, you know, they're something that you're telling a story. And I always say, because politically, I'm an independent. And I always think, as you said earlier about, you don't like Biden, but you're right. People get, all automatically, people get a 
opinion because they don't listen to the facts. They just go, oh, it's like, I mean, you can do that on Facebook. You know, you can say, oh, I like Pringles. Oh, Pringles suck. Well, you ever had a Pringle? Yeah, no, yeah, I never yeah. had a Pringle. But what made you start writing books? Was it something that you were pursued in that? Or was it something that you said, okay, because your first one's about bar. So how did this all, right. how did this all happen? So I'll give you the behind the scenes on this. I wanted to write a book. Once I got established in the media world a year or two in, I thought, oh, this would be great. I was writing columns for CNN and for other outlets and well-received. And, and again, to, to bring it back to Cherry Hill, I mean, I was raised with a very strong writing background. And I feel like I left Cherry Hill East, of course, far from a finished product as a writer, but with really good writing skills. And um, I, for a while, I had a literary agent who was trying to shop certain proposals. We got limited success, and then it sort of just went away and nothing happened. HarperCollins, my publisher, who's one of the major three major publishers in the United States, their edit, their content creator in the political areas, this guy, Eric Nelson, he DM'd me over Twitter. We never met. He just sent me a 17-word DM that I quote in the acknowledgments to my first book that said something like, hey, I see you on air. Would you want to write a book about what's happened to DOJ? I'm an editor, not an agent. And I said, yes, I would. And two days later, we had a deal. Uh, to this day, I have no literary agent. I have no book agent. I did both of my book deals by myself. Um, I was very lucky that this Eric, who, 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 you know, his job was basically the way he describes it to like watch TV and read media and look for people with interesting voices, not literal, actual voice right. box voices, but with interesting things to say. And he just reached out to me cold. You know, Twitter DMs are such a cesspool of, of bizarre stuff and solicitations and cryptocurrency and people who hate you and people who love you and want to date you. You know, you never know what it's going to be. And amidst all the madness was this one line. Uh, and Eric and I have done, we did both books together for HarperCollins. He was my editor both times. And it was, you know, writing a book is, is a lot of work. It can be really stressful, but Eric did the best thing that editor, any editor can do, which is nothing. He let me do whatever I want. I'd send him chapters once in a while. He would just write back. Great. Keep doing this. Um, he let me, he encouraged me to just be as forthright and bold as, as I could and I was. The first book, like you said, is a full-throated 280-page takedown of Bill Barr and the way I believe he corrupted the Justice Department. And the second book is called Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. And there's a lot of targets in that book. Um, but I do say to, uh, I've said to Eric and I've said to HarperCollins, I said, I, I know why you guys like me as an author, because I'm cheap and I'm fast. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I did two books within 18 months of each other, which is two too too much. I don't recommend that. Um, so you know, we'll, we'll we'll if and when I do my third book, I'm sure it'll be back with them. I don't know what that's going to be yet, but um, writing a book is is quite a, it, it's really challenging, but it's it's extremely rewarding as well. Now, for Untouchable, how did you choose who you would write about? Because you've ran into so many different people, and we you you're yeah. in the media, so you hear all these different stories. How do you choose? Yeah. Like, how do you say, okay, these are the pricks, these are what I'm going to go <laughs> after, like. Um, I, I like to think that I make that decision based on merit, that I go after people who deserve it. And in the book, I actually do praise certain people, certain prosecutors, and I'm very critical of others. And others are sort of a mixed bag, like Merrick Garland, for example. I praise him. I say he has been he has done a very good job of reestablishing DOJ's independence. He has been nothing but honest. I mean, he doesn't say a lot, but he's never misled the American public. But I also criticize him for being too timid and too tepid in some of his investigations. 
Um, the way we did the second book was Eric said to me shortly after the first one published, they were thrilled with it. He said, what do you want to do next? I said, I don't know. He goes, well, what do, what do people ask you the most? What's the question you get asked most? I said, oh, that's easy, right? How the hell does he get away with it? Usually they're talking about Trump, but a lot of other people too. And in the book, I sort of range over the landscape of celebrity and um, rich, powerful, connected people from Trump to other politicians who've been prosecuted to Jeffrey Epstein, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, various CEOs. Um, and and I, what I try to do in the book is, you know, is use a combination of my own experience. I tell a lot of stories from my time as a prosecutor with public reporting, with my own original reporting. I got some behind the scenes information from DOJ to try to, I, no one can ever fully answer that question. How do powerful people get away with it? But to make it more real and to make it more specific for people so they can understand some of the lesser known tactics and benefits that powerful people have in the system. Now, you also mentioned your podcast. Tell me a little more about that because I love podcasting. I've yeah. been doing this one for 12 years, but it's it's, it's it's a fascinating subject. But how did you come up with that idea? Because once again, you're a legal analyst, you're a family man, you're an author. you got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Um, I have two podcasts. I have a weekly, which comes out every Friday morning, called Third Degree. And this is with Vox Media and Cafe, which is uh, – Cafe is run by Preet Bharara, who was my boss at the U.S. Attorney's Office and still my boss now. He likes to remind me. Um, <laughs> but I do – it's a weekly 10-minute just here's what I think is interesting or important in the news this week. Uh, people love it. I think part of the reason people love it is because it comes out on Friday morning, so everyone's in a good mood, and it's really short. It's eight, nine minutes, seven to ten minutes, which is you can do it while you're – you know, while you're taking a walk, while you're walking your dog, whatever. Uh, the bigger project is Up Against the Mob, which is two seasons in now, um, based on my career as a prosecutor. And the way that happened was pre called me one day. You'd be interested in doing a bigger picture podcast about your time as a mob prosecutor. I said, yes, we're done. Like there was no negotiation. I was like, yes, I would. Um, the first season I interviewed various people in the mob world. Uh, one of my former cooperators who actually since has died, um, a famous defense mob defense lawyer up here, Murray Richmond, who just gives a great interview, unbelievable stories from the time he was put on trial himself and beat the case to the time he went out drinking with Frank Sinatra after he won a case for a Lucchese boss. Um, I did one with an FBI agent who went undercover and infiltrated the Gambino family. Um, so we do six or seven episodes of that. Season two is the full story of Springfield, which I just gave you a piece of, again, by talking to the people who did it, my fellow prosecutors, the FBI agents, the mass state troopers, the, um, the Anthony, the guy who was involved, who was actually part of the mob, um, a journalist who covered it. There's a couple surprises guests that I don't want to give away here, but we get a couple. We get one guest. I will tell you that we had a storyboard person come in and listen to it, and she said, when I heard this person's voice and realized who it was, I shrieked um, because it, I can't give it away. It's so good. But but truly, everyone who has listened to this podcast has gone nuts about it, it has four point nine stars on, you know, on Apple and Spotify. The only people who, who gave it anything other than a five star. And this this makes me nuts are the people who wrote. I couldn't figure out how to download this and play it in my car. One star. Oh, every <laughs> Everything other than the five-star reviews are the technical problems. This wouldn't play for me. We paused it, whatever. I'm like, come on, be fair. But but this is, I guarantee you, listen to the first five minutes, you'll be hooked. It's seven episodes. Each episode's about a half hour, and you'll fly through. Now, now you mentioned earlier how, you know, some DMs you get are, are hate, people hate you. Do you get hate tweets? Because, you know, when I see you, 
Yes. I don't. I don't see you as someone who's. You, as I said, you seem fair. You seem intelligent. But yeah. do you get hate tweets, and, and how do you respond to them? Because I hate when pe- people just, it's any group. I mean, you can be like, well, what's up, Cherry Hill group? And someone can say, I heard cops this place. It's like, do you oh, live yeah. near that place? No. And then, like, who do you, who cares if you heard cops? What kind of hate mail do you get, or hate things do you get? I, I, listen, I, I live in a very small town in central Jersey called Metuchen. It's two square miles. And we have a Facebook group, or not we, but there is a Facebook group called We Love Metuchen. And all it is is people just attacking each other. So, yeah, um, I do. I get plenty of hate tweets. How do I respond? I don't. Um, but the, thing, the, the problem is 95% of the hate tweets are for people who are just completely misconstruing what I've said or don't click on the link, right? Like, you're right. I absolutely call it down the middle. I think it makes for better, more honest analysis. I actually think it makes for better TV because – when you when you see me come on, you don't go, oh, gee, I know what this guy's going to say, right? There's certain people you go, of course, it's going to be whatever's worse for Trump or whatever's best for Trump or whatever's best for the Democrats or whatever's worse for the Democrats. That That's not me. Um, but that makes me nuts when people just completely, you know, I, I said the other day, I'll give you an example. Last week, I said, <clears throat> I said in a clip something like, why on earth is DOJ taking so long on Hunter Biden? The fact that it's taken five years is outrageous. There's no way this is a five-year investigation. This isn't even a five-month investigation. Now, I don't even think that cuts either way. I'm not saying he should or shouldn't be charged or whatever. And half the people were like, screw you. Why are you calling for DOJ to hammer Hunter Biden? Why do you hate Democrats? You're not fair. And the other half was like, you know, screw you, Hunter Biden. I mean, it's just like people are going to see what, you know, Social media tends to bring out the worst in people. They misread what you say, or they don't even read or listen to what you say, and they just see one keyword in there and it, and it accuses them. So it, it it used to bother me. It, it did when I started, but I just I, I am largely pulled off of Twitter because it's so non-constructive. So I'll basically use Twitter at this point to just to just forward things or you know news pieces but it's hopeless to try to explain something on twitter because people will just flip out and get angry and the, the worst part i can handle anger trust me but you know i i was in courtrooms with mob lawyers like i'm all right but what makes me really what, what makes me batty is when people outright miss misstate what you said and then knock it down or attack it i just that that gets me I got two more questions. One, how's your relationship with Smirkotish? Because that's where I found you. I like Smirkotish. He's a Philly guy. He's down the middle. And I always see people sit there and go, oh, you're loving Biden or you're loving Trump. And I'm watching it as someone going, no, he's just saying what he sees. So how did you get involved with him? And what's your relationship with him? Smirk freaking rules. He is the best. He is. He has the best radio show. He's great on our air. I've gotten to know him. I just through the CNN world, probably the green room or whatever. Um, he's a Philly guy. We bonded on that. Um, and I do his radio show quite often. And I do his Saturday morning show on CNN um, a good amount, too. What I love about Michael is he's so intellectually honest. He is absolutely unpredictable. He is all about the merits of the argument. He feels no allegiance to Democrats, Republicans. He he also is willing to do gutsy segments, to, to ask gutsy questions that people sometimes don't want to deal with or want to tiptoe around. He does it on his CNN show. And the funny thing is, Michael has a totally different, I'm convinced, a very different viewership on his CNN show, which is Saturday mornings, than any other CNN show. And I know that because whenever I do Michael's show, I get I hear from totally different people. 
who like wouldn't other maybe you you might even be one of these people who like wouldn't just routinely watch Anderson Cooper at eight or Wolf at six. I, I am. Or, I, that's that's the only. I just watched Smirconics. Right. That's the only exactly. political so show I watch. Exactly my point. Like I will hear from people who never would just don't routinely watch CNN who go, "Hey, oh, so young, that was cool." It's like you know, I was on you know twenty two times this week, but. Smirk is the one they watch. They watch. So I have so much respect for him. Great sense of humor too. Sometimes I'll just when I'm listening to his serious XM show, I'll just call in because I got to add to it. Like if it's a Philly thing or you know a fun thing like that. Um, and he's just he's just what to me what a broadcaster and, and a journalist should be. He's intellectually honest. He's curious and he's gutsy. Um, and and sometimes it rubs people wrong on both sides. But he has the credibility. He can say when liberals call up angry. He, go, he goes, look, I'm with you on a lot of issues, and same thing with conservatives. So uh, to me, it's someone that I, I try to emulate um, that aspect of what he does, that just pure intellectual honesty and curiosity. And finally, what is it? What is a week like for a legal analyst? I mean, because <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you know, I know you work with Donna Bash. I'm friends with her boyfriend, Spencer. Yeah. He's an actor. He oh, knows sure. what... Spencer he knows. Garrett. Yeah, yeah I'm, I, he's been on the show five times. He's... Huh. He... He knows what his week is like. Like, I always think, like, it's such a random couple. But, like, you know, the, you guys don't know what's going on. How Do you get, like, a, a weekly plan, or do they just say, call you and go, okay, here's what you got to do? It's it's mayhem. Um, first of all, Dana, because you mentioned Dana, um, she is a Jersey girl, as I'm sure you know, and awesome in every single respect. You know, it's funny because there are some people that you know of, and then you meet them, and what are they going to be like? And, and so many people here – Two of whom I, I jump jump to mind, Dana Bash and Wolf Blitzer, are even better people than you could ever imagine. Um, so um, the schedule is utter mayhem. I mean, the, the 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 biggest downside of this job is you just don't know. The way I do it is I will book a month ahead. So usually, like on the fifteenth of each month, I will contact all the, all the my usual evening shows from from. Jake Tapper and Wolf Blitzer uh, in in the early evenings and then Aaron Burnett, Anderson Cooper, and now Caitlin Collins at night. And I would just say, hey, guys, for July, do you want do you want to do July 3rd, 8th, 11th, 14th? And they'll go, yep, book. So I will have every day, uh, you know, if I have something I can't, I won't book that night if it's my son's graduation or whatever. But then, and then the morning show, just anytime they need me, they'll just they'll just text me the night before and go, can you do the morning? Because it's always easy to do the morning. It doesn't conflict with anything. But then it's utter mayhem. Like there's days when you'll be booked for three shows and they'll go, there's no legal. We don't need you. You're good to go. And then there's days when they'll go, oh my God, where are you? Can you get in here right now? It's 11 a.m. Um, and so you have to just be flexible. It, it, it's, you never know. I've gotten calls when I've been in the supermarket, like, holy crap, we need you. And look, if you can't do it, you can just say, I can't do it. There's, there's, I'm not the only legal analyst. There's probably six or seven of us here. Um, so, you know, everyone's respectful, but I try to do as much as I humanly can. But it is frustrating. And the other thing that, that is a change of pace is my days are largely upside down. Like I'll sometimes do the morning show, but the middle of my days, I generally try to keep clear. I'll sometimes do like one midday hit. But then I'm often heading into the city at 4 p.m. to do primetime at 6 or whatever. And so you have to get used to that. But it, it's this is what this is. This is this job. We chose, you know, like there, I'll, I'll give you a quick just story of, of you know, Usually it happens more the opposite where they're like, oh, my God, something huge is coming. We need you and you're on all day, which is great. But like there's frustration. So the other day I was on with Jake Tapper, also a Philly guy, Jake Tapper, other side of the river, though. Um, and uh, he gives me he gives me a hard time. He's like, oh, you're a Jersey guy. So yeah, the I... exact same distance from Philly. <laughs> you just happen to be on that side of the river. Like, get off your high horse. Um, but um, uh, but so I 
I was doing his show. I came into the city to do it. You know, you get in an Uber and then you can get reimbursed. But it took like an hour and a half. It was horrible, horrible, like two accidents. I get in here, but it was going to be a one-on-one on an issue that I felt was really important with me and Jake about DOJ and the way they handled um, the January 6th investigation. It was sort of right up my alley. So I get in here. Um, we get one question in. I'm 10 seconds into my first answer. And in my earpiece, they're going rap, meaning like, meaning like we have to, you know, meaning like, yeah, not immediately, meaning, yeah, you know, finish in the next 10, 15 seconds. So I rap and I'm like, what the fuck? And they're like, there's a Coast Guard, you know, with this submersible going down to the Titanic. The Coast Guard had a press conference. So, you know, we had to cut away. It's the right move. So that was it. All of that for 12 seconds <laughs> worth of uh, of being on air. But that's the life. And like, you can't, like all the producers are texting me. Oh my God, so sorry. I said, I, I, I've been doing this a long time. It's fine. I get it. You know, it's not like you cut away from me because you thought someone else was more interesting. You cut away from me because it was breaking news. So um, it's part of life and, and you can't complain. I always tell people like, don't ever complain when that happens because it's not because they don't like you. It's because something else popped up and don't vent at the bookers because the God bless the poor bookers here because they work their ass off and they're the last person on the world who wants you to be canceled. But I have heard all, I won't name names, but I've heard all sorts of stories of famous people screaming at bookers, screaming at producers. Why was I canceled? Why was I moved back? Um, I wish I could tell, I'll tell you off air some of the names, but um it's just there's no use in doing that like it just helped just you have to this is the business nobody forces us to go on tv we choose it and so if you want to be in news you have to flow with the news yeah i want to thank you elliot this has been great i'm glad to talk to you now how can people find out about you because i'm going to start i don't listen to podcasts but i'm going to listen to yeah. yours because it, it you just you sold me on that i'm like you know what i'm <laughs> going to find it I, I don't even i don't even have apple i have a i have a uh, an Android phone, but I'm going to get, I'm going to find it. But how can people find your book, find out you, so, find out all your stuff? CNN is just, just, I'm on as needed. You can flip on the TV at any time and there's a, there's a chance I'll be on. Um, I wish there was more regularity so I could say tune in every day at four, but um, you know, you'll see me throughout. If there's a legal story, you'll fairly reliably see me on various times in the day. Uh, Twitter, I'm Ellie Honig, E-L-I-E-H-O-N-I-G. Part of the beauty of having an unusual name is there's no, like, which Ellie Honig, you know, Steve Cooper, there's probably 4,000 Steve Coopers on Twitter. Uh, but Ellie Honig, I'm the only one. I'm on Instagram, Ellie Honig. Um, the podcast, if you go on Spotify or Apple, Third Degree is the weekly, and then Up Against the Mob is obviously the mob one. So uh, and my books are Hatchet Man and Untouchable. They're both in bookstores. It's a, that, by the way, can I just tell you, I love that. I love going to bookstores and finding my book like far away. But a friend of mine um, sent me a photo um, from the Yale bookstore, the Yale University bookstore of my book. And he, he texted to me, said, hey, you finally got into Yale. Uh, <laughs> so, um, all of those places I can be found. So people, go, go, just Google them. Find all this stuff. Listen to that podcast. Buy his books. Uh, you can go to my website, coopertalk.net. There's over 960 episodes. You can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.